problem-solving courts. Courts that solve problems rather than create more problems than they solve. This episode features a conversation with now-retired judge Jeff Ford, a pioneer with problem-solving courts and former president of the Illinois Association of Problem-Solving Courts. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and solutions about justice, healing, and safer communities. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Judge Jeff Ford. Judge Ford recently retired as a circuit judge in Champaign County in Illinois, and he's also longtime past president, longtime president, and now past president of the Illinois Association of Problem-Solving Courts. Judge Ford, welcome to our program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You know, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you as an episode of Justice Voices for a long time, and I'll tell you why. Well, a lot of people have been wanting to have conversations with me, but I don't know if they're good things. (laughs) Yeah, it goes with the territory (laughs) of uh, being a judge for as long as you were. Well, for a long time, and people who have listened to this program know, I have advocated that the biggest thing we need to do the big picture thing that we need to do to reform our criminal justice system, improve our criminal justice system, so that it's more effective from both a public safety perspective and from a justice perspective, is to shift from a primarily punishment paradigm of justice to a problem-solving paradigm of justice. And you were one of the pioneers here in Illinois of establishing and presiding over a problem-solving court where you took that concept and actually applied it. But what most people may not realize, and I think you work primarily in a drug court kind of context, but you were working with people who appeared before you in court as defendants who were selected because they were high-risk, high-need people. These were the people most likely, when I say high-risk, I mean high-risk of recidivism, by which I mean recycling through prison. And many of them, I know because I sat in your courtroom when I was in the governor's office and watched this process, many of them had cycled and recycled through the system quite a few times. Correct. And they were high-need because many of them were drug addicts or otherwise dependent. Uh, the dopamine craving was just so powerful in their lives that it was taking over their lives. Okay, so, and the two of them are related, the high risk and the high need, but problem-solving courts, rather than just a regular criminal court, what's the difference? What is a problem-solving court? The problem-solving courts, as we we call them now, I mean, other people have called them specialty courts, I they may be going back to specialty courts now, uh, but uh, nationally they've known as problem-solving courts. They're where you get people who are in the system, and as you said, are high-risk, high-need. And high-risk is not just as they commit crimes. High-risk is because of maybe where they grew up, who their family are, 
who they spend time with. Are they using drugs? Are they in school? Did they stay in school very long? When did they first start committing crimes? Are they using substances? The, the high risk part, as you said, basically keeps them coming back into the system. High needs, and those are criminogenic risks. Uh, the needs are substance abuse normally and mental health issues. And a lot of times they just run together. When you put high risk, high needs people together, then you have people who will not be able to successfully complete uh, terms of probation or conditional discharge or any other conditions they have of a sentence uh, just because that criminogenic risk combined with the needs won't let them. So the problem-solving courts are meant to deal with them. Now, can you get other populations in there? Because if you think about it, high-risk, high-needs, there's four quadrants. High-risk, high-needs, high-risk, low-needs, uh, low-needs, high-risk, uh, and so forth. And I mean, low and low. Low, low and low. Uh, the research has shown the high-risk, high-needs are the people that you get the biggest bang for the buck because you get services for them. And that's what the problem solving courts do. They bring in people who can provide services to address the criminogenic risks and the needs. So uh, on a drug court team or mental health court team or a veterans court team, uh, you will have not only the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the judge, the uh, probation, but you will have people from different treatment organizations, mental health, substance abuse, and others. In, in veterans courts, you'll have people from the VA, and you have other services and social services involved and bring them all together. You can't do that for everybody because the research has shown that the other three quadrants, those people will do just as well on regular probation. But the people that we're bringing in need those services and need it brought to them for them to be able to succeed. And they can succeed if you do it correctly. So the, that's that's the high risk, high needs part of it. So you're, you're taking people that will eventually go to the penitentiary or die. And a lot of the, the people that went through my court have told me, if it wasn't for you, I'd be dead or in the penitentiary. The other ones can do well if they go and do the services that they're supposed to. But the high risk, high needs population won't. Now, the remarkable thing about this is, number one, as we've just mentioned, these are the toughest cases Correct. to break the cycle of recidivism, of recycling back through the system. But these are the ones that keep coming back. They're also, therefore, the most expensive in terms of taxpayer resources, court resources, and all the other resources, service resources that are involved, as long as that cycle goes unbroken, it's very expensive. Correct. And so when you, it caught my ear when you said, this is where you get the most bang for the buck. Well, that's partly because, well, largely because what you're doing is intervening effectively to break the cycle that is a very expensive cycle from a taxpayer perspective, but also in terms of social and family relationship oh, yes. costs. Oh, yes. The, if, if you talk about it, uh, there's a lot of expense, as you said, going into the prosecution, uh, the continuous recidivism, uh, the, the breakup of the family because of that. And the loss of taxpayer money for somebody could be working, the damage to people's property, uh, the damage to people. I mean, there's a lot of cost to that. 
if you break that and one there's a cost to treating them the, if you if you look at a comparison the people who are in the system there's less cost for treatment because most of them don't get it there's more cost to treat this population and bringing the people together but when you take the decrease in the recidivism the decrease in the jail time in the penitentiary time the decreased time for the prosecutor and the defense attorneys or other attorneys that have to be brought in to these cases uh the insurance costs that aren't no longer paid out the property uh damage that isn't done less police costs uh there's a savings and the savings is substantial there's been research as to that well that really isn't surprising to me it may be surprising to a lot of people because the the, the main reason these problem solving courts some people may ask well why wouldn't every court be a problem solving court well ideally every court would be in True. one way or another a problem solving court but when you're talking about dealing with people who are at greatest risk of recidivism and with the greatest needs that need to be addressed to prevent them from continuing this cycle uh, you're talking about involving a, a total team and i want to we'll talk about that in just Correct. a bit and that involves a lot of salaries a lot of time that and a lot of expenses and so there's this resource problem of that you run into when it comes to scaling up this approach now fortunately as you said uh, traditional approaches can work particularly with a lot of the types of cases the uh, lower level types of crimes that we're talking about uh, in most of these problem-solving courts, but not all of them. Uh, there are other, these populations aren't limited to people who have problems with drugs. True. Some of them have mental health problems. And there's problem-solving courts for that. And in fact, with mental health problems, some of these, some of the people, some of the, well, I want to ask you about what types of courts there are, but some of them are veterans courts. Yes. Where they're dealing particularly with people who have problems like with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other sorts of problems, which may be drugs, may be other sorts of factors that are rather unique to that population. Which is why you have a separate veterans court, because they're veterans with drug problems. Well, let's put it this way. There's people in drug court who have mental health issues. There are people in mental health court who have drug issues. Uh, people in veterans court can have both of them too. The difference in the veterans court is that when you you bring together people who have had a shared experience, they have been in a military situation. And if I had somebody, and I have, I've had veterans in my drug court, and most of the high risk, high needs people that I've seen that just come off the streets do not say, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir uh to me but and you can tell when you have a veteran and so the courts are set up not just to have the team but the team has to do it in certain ways uh, the judge is a huge factor in this uh because everybody looks at them the judge makes a decision but the judge and when i started my court i wanted people from the first day to realize this is different and i was talking to them more so you have to have a conversation. You have to let them know that you care because you have to earn their trust. Well, talking to a veteran is different than talking to somebody else who has not been in the military. So you have to approach it just a little bit different. 
in that kind of conversation. But and that's why they're separate. But a lot of these courts, there's overlapping uh, areas, especially with drugs and alcohol and mental health issues. Your experience with tackling some of these problems in, in that type of court was one that made you a pioneer in Illinois and kind of a progressive process that evolved into what we're talking now about now as a problem-solving court. And I think that story would really illustrate for people who are listening what the difference is between regular courts, problem-solving courts, what makes them effective, what makes them, what is required to make them effective, what the costs are of all of that. So why don't you just tell the story, tell your story? You were mentioning part of it earlier when you talked about doing the same thing. And when I first was on the bench, I was doing some traffic in 85. I mean, I was on the bench for 35 years, starting in 85. But I did about a quarter, 20% a quarter of uh, the traffic cases in Champaign County, which meant some DUI cases. And after a couple of years, in my mind, it was, we're doing the same thing over and over again and not getting any different result. So I decided, okay, let's change it up. And this was about 1987. So I thought, what can we do? And in Illinois, there's a disposition called court supervision. Now, court supervision means that the person is not convicted. So if you get court supervision in a DUI case, you get your driver's license right back. And you got court supervision back then, you didn't go to jail. In fact, your DUI wasn't even sent to the Secretary of State's office, so there was no record that you ever had one. And I would see people getting court supervision over and over again in a lot of places around the state. And the reason for that back then was because a court in one county wouldn't necessarily know that somebody had received court supervision Correct. for DUI in some other county. And as a consequence, they were thinking they were giving somebody a second chance, when actually it might be a third or fourth bite at the same apple. True. And in and, and, and some counties, they really didn't care. Everybody who got DUI got a court supervision. A lot of them were, of course, the first one, but even after that. So I thought, okay, for court supervision, I'm going to do it a little different. So I went and I talked to our sheriff and then I talked to the newspaper and in, in our state's attorney at the time in 1980 had made the decision that anybody who wants court supervision for DUI cannot negotiate a court supervision plea. They have to plead guilty and ask the judge for court supervision. And I was part of that discussion <laughs> at that time. And so uh, I basically said, if you want court supervision, I will give you court supervision if you qualify, but you will also have to do this. You will have to put an ad in the paper with your picture saying that on such and such a date, you received a DUI in Champaign County, Illinois, you pled guilty, and basically that's it. Um, and it, if it was in Champaign County, it had to be in the local paper here. If it was out of county, you had to do it in your local paper there. I talked to the sheriff, it would cost them $2 because I wanted the picture, but I wanted it to be a mugshot. I did not want them sitting under a tree with a dog. Uh, and for them to get the case dismissed, because at the end of the court's provision period, if you did everything, the case got dismissed, like you never even got this DUI, uh, they had to provide that within so many days. And I started hearing back, because this broke 
wide open in the county. And uh, my wife heard from a nurse that uh, they were talking about going out drinking Friday night after work. And the nurse said, I'm not going because I can't have my picture in the paper. And at, that lasted for about a year until one of my old uh, law school classmates uh, appealed it. And the appellate court said, well, this is embarrassment and court's provision. One of the conditions cannot be embarrassment. So they said I couldn't do that anymore. But what happened was I got contacted by the Illinois Department of Alcohol and Substance Abuse, DASA. And they were doing presentations for treatment providers and evaluators who do DUI cases. And I got together with a number of judges and we started doing presentations with them. And then the group of judges and uh, Tony Monteleone, Anthony Monteleone, who was the presiding judge in the 5th Municipal in Cook County, who was uh, in charge of us, we started putting on presentation for judges about DUIs, about treatment, what's involved in treatment. We brought AA people to talk to them too. And Alcoholics other Anonymous. Yes. And uh, I started learning after talking with the people, the treatment people. I learned a lot about substance abuse. Uh, Bill White, who uh, did all the training of the Secretary of State people in Illinois, uh, was at Lighthouse in Bloomington, was well known. Which is a drug treatment facility was well-known nationally. Uh, in fact, when Clinton became president, Hillary's people contacted him about managed care uh, in this area. I learned a lot about substance abuse, substance use, and what worked and what didn't work. In 1990, uh, about August of 1990 or July, I learned I was going to take over all the traffic in Champaign County in February of 91. So I thought, okay, it's a time to start making some changes. Let me just interrupt by saying this, an observation. Even before that time, I remember reading an article in the newspaper where then Illinois Secretary of State, uh, Jim Edgar, later governor of Illinois, but at that time, Secretary of State identified Champaign County, where you and I practiced and started off, as having the lowest rate of recidivism in DUI cases in the state. So you were not satisfied with having even that rate comparative to other counties, because back in that in those counties, that, okay, uh, that might be a rather low bar, True. speaking overall. And my thought at the time was, okay, I'm going to take over traffic court. What do we do to make our streets safer? I was thinking about public safety. And from what I learned, uh, starting to go around the state from what I learned from substance abuse treatment people or substance use uh, disorders now was that we're not doing it right. So I went and I met with the alcohol economist people in Champaign, sat down with a bunch of them around the table and I said, I'm going to be sending you some people. Will you take them? And they had a long discussion about it in front of me. And uh, I said, I'm going to want to know that they were there. I'm going to want to know that they stayed. Uh, nobody has to break confidentiality. I just want sheets signed or initialed that they were there, when they were there, where they were. They said, after a long discussion, they said, we're supposed to help people. We will do this for you. I went to probation and I said, I'm going to make your job easier because we had public service work coordinator. I said, 
I'm going to make for the DUI people, most of it's just going to be a paper thing for you and, and monitoring some work. Uh, I went to the treatment people and I said, I'm going to want your reports and I'm going to want everybody to make sure that it gets to me correctly. Uh, you know, I, I got them all there because I offered them cookies in the afternoon at a meeting and we sat down. And so I started in February 91. I took over traffic, which at that time, Champaign County was just under 180,000 population. We had 27,000 traffic tickets a year, about 600 DUIs. And my goal was to make everybody accountable. We were going to monitor that they did what they were ordered to. And if they didn't, there were going to be consequences. And just make them get the treatment they needed. Everybody was going to get an evaluation from the evaluators. The law at that time was the legislature said you had to. The Supreme Court said it wasn't mandatory. So I basically let it be known that it was going to be mandatory. Uh, whether you got court supervision or not, if somebody needed treatment, I wanted an evaluation because I couldn't order correct treatment if I didn't know what the problem was. Well, you can't engage in problem solving without understanding the problem to begin correct. with. You can punish a person easy I, I mean you could just send them off and say okay how many how many times have you appeared in court before well one dose didn't do it two dose didn't do it three doses of prison didn't do it we're going to just going to keep on giving you an increasing dose of prison and even though it's not working so far we're going to engage in the fantasy that just keeping doing the same thing is going to at some point produce different results you weren't doing that the only thing i misjudged was the attorneys because in, in DUI cases, the attorneys will always say, well, don't put my client in jail. They don't need jail. They need treatment. And what I was going to do was that. Do the treatment, make sure, and try and keep them out of jail. So there are two types of defendants at, at that point. There were the ones that needed to go to jail because of their prior record or from the facts of this case, and there were ones that didn't. So no matter if you got court supervision, the, the, mand the main leniency, or if you got any other community-based sentence, I got the evaluation in court. I went over the evaluation with the defendant before they were sentenced. Didn't matter if it was agreed sentence or not. We sat down, we talked about it, which is basically what they do in the problem solving courts. What I didn't know at the time, what I learned years later was I was running a problem solving court. I had started one, they're now called DUI courts. But I would go over it with them. I would tell them what my sentence was gonna be, why I am sentencing you to get these things. Uh, about my record showed that about 44, 45% I told them they were going to be ordered to go to AA. At that time, I didn't know there wasn't the cases yet about AA. And so I later changed that to uh, going to uh, self-help, alcohol a self-help groups. But if they needed to go to jail, I would sentence them to jail. And sometimes I would put them in for seven days and then let them out. Other times I wouldn't put them in jail at all. And I'd say, look, I'm going to have you back here in a couple of months. If you do all the treatment you can do between now and then, and we had started what's called the victim impact panel in 1990 in August. If you go to the victim impact panel, if we have one before then, you will not go to jail. I will continue this and you're going to keep coming back every other month and start showing me that you're doing everything you can. If you don't do what you can, you're going to go to jail for some of these days. And if they hadn't been there before, I'd put them in for six or seven. If they had been for them before, I'd put them in for 10 or 14 and then have them come back 
after that to show me that they're doing everything they're supposed to. Now, at this point, what you're employing is the classic carrot and stick approach, right? And I called them remission hearings. I uh, borrowed that from a good friend, Jack DeLamar, who had started that in in, uh, juvenile cases. My mentor, when I started off, it was the judge in traffic court in the DUI cases. For the ones that didn't need to go to jail, I ordered community service, but I told them, you will not get community service credit for doing community service, picking up trash in the park or whatever. You're going to get it by going to the AA or NA meetings. You're going to get it by getting all the treatment. If there's hours left after that, then you can do it uh, picking up the garbage or whatever. And you have to go to a victim impact panel. Because it is, in fact, community service to take the steps necessary to become less of a threat to public safety. The community has, that is a service, important service to the community. In my mind, it was back in 1991, nobody else believed that. But I told them, I am giving you credit off of that. And this is how I made the probation office job easier, because they just had to collect the paperwork. And if the people weren't doing what they were supposed to, then they could file a probation violation report and the person could come back to court. And the state could ask that their probation or conditional discharge or uh, court supervision could be revoked. I didn't know if any of this would work. My probation officer even thought I was crazy. Uh, Two months later, we had our first remission hearings, and all of a sudden, somebody stood up in the courtroom and thanked me for saving their life. And this continued to happen every month that I was having remission hearings. And I would have about 18 one afternoon, uh, uh, every other week I had some of them. And we just kept going, and people started doing better. And I would sit in that courtroom, and I saw these people the day they were arrested a lot of times. I would be the first judge they saw continuing back in front of me. At the time of remission, I could look up and I'd see them walk in the back of the courtroom. And right away, I could tell if they're doing what they're supposed to, because a lot of them looked better, dressed better, walked better. Their attitude was better. I knew that they were doing exactly what they were supposed to. Um, And I knew I was on to something. Now, I was wrong about the attorneys. They didn't like it at all, because it turns out that just because they said what they're client needed was treatment, it didn't mean that I should um, monitor it, you know. Enforce it. Ordering it is fine, but making them do it, uh, I became the worst judge in Champaign County. There was a bar poll, and they said I should not be a judge because I didn't know what I was doing. Meanwhile, I had people from all over the state calling, uh, judges from all over the state calling me up and talking to me about this. Uh, I had treatment people from other counties because we had people, we have uh, three highways coming through Champaign County. Uh, They were were getting their treatment there, calling me up and saying, what the hell are you doing there? I'd say, why? Because your people are the most motivated people we have ever had. Um, Some of them that ended up doing public service work and then they completed their treatment. My uh, public service work uh, coordinator would come and say, they're hiring them. The people we're sending them to do public service work for are hiring the DUI people. In fact, they request the DUI people back. And it's just, I I perform weddings eventually for people who I'd put in jail and then let out. Uh, it was just amazing things that were happening. And we had a snowstorm that closed the courthouse one afternoon. And as you know, the traffic court building was in a block away from the courthouse. And I took a volunteer uh, court officer and asked him if he would stay the afternoon because we had remission hearings that afternoon. Um, We had 20 set, I remember. 
17 or 18 showed up. One did not show up because the attorney said, oh, no, the courthouse is closed. The rest of them, my court officer said it was amazing because I'd look out and saw white and all of a sudden you'd see this figure come through the snow. And a lot of it was because they wanted to show me because I was interested in, because I would talk to them. They would come back for the remission hearing. I would talk to them about things. And this is what they do in the problem-solving courts now. Um, and they wanted to show me. They wanted to show off. And of course, I would commend them for what they were doing. Good job. You know, how you feeling? Do you feel better? Things going well for you? Uh, just to kind of reinforce that they were doing well. Now, let me just say, when I came into your court, which is, I don't know what, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that. It was while I was in the governor's office. I wanted to observe your court in action because I knew you and you were president of the Illinois Association of Problem-Solving Courts. So figure this is a good place for me to see how it works. What I observed was not just a judicial proceeding, but a relationship mm -hmm. between you as the judge and the people who were appearing before you. That relationship would start with the way you would address and talk to people who were appearing for the first time, because I observed some of those, but particularly people who were graduating from the program. And there was even a graduation ceremony right. for them as they were coming out, and, and the pride. And you were more than a judge to them. You were something more. There was a chemistry there. And so if someone thinks that, well, all we need to do is to set up a system that will solve these problems. Problem-solving courts are half the system, but I think the other half is the judge. Well, that's why I started. The, the judge is the most important person in there. Uh, when I started the drug court, as I said, you have to make sure they understand that this is different. This is not, the, such, again, high risk, high needs. They've been in and out of courtrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll go away and do what I want to, which is basically it. You know, you're trying to get somebody who has a substance use disorder to stop using, but they're very comfortable in using. And in my courtroom, a lot of them had been using for 20 years or so. And in my courtroom, the it would before high risk, high needs came out. I would tell people I've long-term felons who most of them have been to the penitentiary before who have been using drugs for about 20 years. And basically that's what they were. And I had to start talking and, and I learned it doing the DUIs, talking to them differently, coming in, sitting down and it, basically telling them what this program is going to be about and what the rules are going to be. And do you want to do this? Cause it's a voluntary program. Uh, but even after that, I would talk to people. Uh, I remember one guy, his, his wife had heart problems. I would ask him all the time how she was doing. I would talk to people about their job. You know, some people, all of a sudden somebody become a manager. I said, okay, you're in charge of people coming in and coming out. Yeah. I said, how does it feel when they don't do what you tell them to do? And they'd start to smile saying, this is what I got here all the time, don't I? And they'd start, but you start building a relationship because what I had to earn was their trust. They needed to know it was different, but I needed to earn their trust. And the whole team needed to earn their trust. 
you have to remember high risk, high needs. They've been in and out of courtrooms. They don't trust anybody. They don't trust their own attorney. They don't trust probation. They've been there before. They don't trust the treatment people if they've been there before. They don't trust the judge. Nobody. So I had to earn trust. And it takes a while to do that with people who don't want to be there and don't trust anybody. So by telling them everything, by making sure they understand that I was concerned about them, explain to them why we were doing it, what they needed, how this was going to work, was something they never had before. When I was doing the DUIs and before I sentenced one guy, I was asking him questions and he looked at me and said, because this is like his, he'd been in the penitentiary before, he said, no judge has ever talked to me like this. I said, I am. And that's what I had to do when I started my drug court, to get their trust. So what you observed was people who knew me, they I was going to react the way they knew I was going to react because I was consistent. They knew if they messed up, something might happen. In the, in the remission hearings and the DUIs, people would come to court and look at the court officer and say, I'm going to jail today. But they showed up anyway, and they knew they messed up. They also knew I was going to let them out and give them another chance. You're putting into action something that I've talked about in prior episodes of this program and also in my professional career. And that is this difference between the punishment paradigm of justice, which is simply pretty much a mathematical sort of thing, mechanical type of thing, and the problem-solving approach or paradigm of justice, where there's a lot more involved. It matters who the judge is. It matters who the judge's team Correct. is. And team we want is to, very important. We want to get into that. Maybe that'd be next. But it is a level of professional challenge that requires a whole different mindset on the part of all the people participating, but especially the judge who leads the team and leads the process. And that is something that I think if I were appearing before you as a defendant, I would pick up on fairly quickly. This judge is talking to me as a person, not as the defendant. Next case. No, you're looking at me as a person and you sound like you actually expect me to change. I don't even expect me to change. Well, most of them don't. Most, most of them come into the drug court and think, you know, they've pulled the wool over somebody's eyes before over and over again. They're going to do it again. And then they realize, at least in my courtroom, they weren't going to do that because I will reward them, and I did for doing well, but I would also sanction them if they didn't do well. And the sanctions is a huge part of it. I mean, rewards are huge. You have to be reward-based. In the DUIs, I didn't have anything except telling people they did a good job, telling them they didn't have to go to jail, uh, doing again, telling them this is what they needed to do, talking to them. Like you said, uh, as you get on now in, in the problem-solving courts, there's money. I mean, I started my DUI court and my drug court without any money. 
Uh, now they wait for three, four hundred thousand dollars or more to start these courts. But I started them without. But you, okay, now let me. You, you're introducing something here, a progression, mm -hmm. because as I said, you were an associate judge and you were doing DUI cases, which are misdemeanor cases. And for those who don't know, misdemeanor is classified as something that's punishable by up to in Illinois. It's one day short of a year. Correct. At the one year point, three hundred sixty-five days, it becomes a felony case. Now you became a circuit judge and you were dealing with felony cases now not just duis and i want to hear how this idea that that these approaches that you developed in this uh the test tube so to speak of dui court were then applied in other contexts well the thing was that while i was doing duis the legislature changed it so uh, DUIs could be felonies. The problem, the thing about it was, our state's attorney here, unless there was a real egregious problem, kept charging the felonies as misdemeanors. And the victims would say, well, why are you doing that? And they said, he said, because Ford's going to be in their life for the next two years. Uh, so he understood what I was doing. So a as an associate, I did felonies. Uh, and in fact, I started my DUI, my drug court, excuse me, we started March 1 in 98, and I didn't become a full circuit until 2005. So I was, I was allowed to do felonies back then. But yeah, uh, the DUI court was all misdemeanors, because uh, we didn't take felonies there. But at that time, there mostly weren't. But uh, I still... Basically, to me, it was a DUI court, which is how a lot of them can be run now. The thing, the difference was every DUI I took, so they didn't have to be high-risk, high-needs. But if you look at DUIs and the research back then, and it still is now, that somebody has to drive under the influence between 200 and 2,000 times to get caught once. Okay, would you repeat that? Somebody has to drive under the influence between 200 and 2,000 times to get caught once. Now, the difference is, is that, you know, in a rural area versus a major urban area. And in a rural area, you could get, you can't get away with it as much if there's police officers there and there are not many places to go. Um, but you can in a big urban area. But so, you know, people who say this is the first time you know, you don't know if lightning's going to hit them or not, because they have done this before. So when you talk, well, it's the same. It's the same thing as how many times when I was doing DUI cases did the defendant say to the judge, "I just had a couple of drinks," mm -hmm. but they'd be having a blood alcohol level of 0.15 or higher, something like that. Okay, you cannot get to that blood alcohol level with just a couple of drinks, unless those were very large drinks. So this idea of a couple, I learned, has is a term of art in that community. Well, that's what the officers expect to hear. Yeah, and, and, and the, the person who's charged with the offense may even be thinking that in their minds. I'm not sure that they were conscious of the fact that it is physically impossible for you to have only had two drinks or even three or something like that and hit that level, that blood alcohol level. Most of them don't count. Right. It's a it's a form of self-denial. They're in denial. And if they were in a blackout state, they don't even remember anyway. And when you think about problem solving, just as it's important for the judge to understand the problem before 
it can be solved. The person who's appearing before you has to recognize the problem before they can engage in what's necessary to Which solve Which is it. why I went over the evaluation with them and read it to them. I mean, and I mentioned blackout. I would tell people, I said, did you read this? Yes. Do you understand it? Well, I said, do you understand what the blackout means? And I would explain it to them. And I would explain, this is why you cannot do this. Because you're conscious and operating a car, but have no idea what you're doing. But this is, this is how I learned to talk to the people that are defendants in the, the drug court. And one of the things I learned as a prosecutor from a toxicologist, when we're talking about the difference between being under the influence and being drunk, between DUI and drunk driving, and that was that one of the first things to go was the ability to see and respond, perceive and respond to the color red. Oh, that's a problem. And the reaction time. And the reaction time comes next, and the person may be able to pass a field sobriety test. In fact, some of the worst alcoholics could pass a field sobriety test. But nevertheless, their ability to, to perceive and react to something as simple as a red light uh, or a pedestrian crossing the street in front of them have been degraded. Sure. But they aren't aware of it because they behave, their behavior isn't necessarily, uh, they don't look drunk. They and people around them, their families, may not recognize the problem until somebody like you brings them face to face with that reality. Everybody has their own connotation of what drunk is. The, the law is, doesn't say anything about being drunk, Bees, is impaired by alcohol cannot think or act with ordinary care. On one occasion, there was a U of I professor, 60s or so, who was blew a .16 or .18 on his way to counsel a grad student at 10 in the morning. He uh, came in front of me, random. He had what we called, he asked for a judicial driving permit. Now that's the chance to be able to drive to and from work, uh, or go to treatment or, or medical uh, matters uh, while you're waiting your trial. And uh, I couldn't give him a judicial driving permit for what he wanted because he was setting up conferences in Paris and London. And I said, I can't give you a license to drive outside of this country. So I said, no. And... Uh, we went on and he pled guilty, wanted court supervision. And this is now three or four months later. And I knew he had the, you, to ask for a judicial driving permit, you had to have a substance use evaluation. And the evaluation showed that he was a high risk, that he was uh, drinking numerous drinks, uh, that he couldn't stop at times. And he said he, he was a high risk and he needed a lot of treatment. So at the time of the sentencing, I asked him, I said, uh, have you gotten any of this treatment? And he, he said, no. I said, why not? He said, well, I just thought it was something I could do or not do. I didn't think it was mandatory at all. And I said, no, it is. And I explained to him, I said, you need this treatment. So he wanted court supervision. And I said, to give court supervision, I have to make a number of determinations. 
have to decide whether you are a person not likely to commit further offenses. Said, you've never committed one before, so it's hard for me to say that you are likely to commit further offenses. I have to find that it is in your best interest that you receive court supervision. Now, you may think, well, it's always in the defendant's best interest that they receive court supervision, but I don't. And here's the problem here. You can't stop drinking. You, when told you needed treatment, refused to get it. It is not in your best interest for me to give you your driver's license back and say, now go get your treatment. I said, you need to understand that. I said, is it in the best interest of the public? Is the other thing I have to make a determination of. And I said, I don't think so. I said, I am not going to give you court supervision because you don't understand the problem that you have and you're not going to do anything unless I make you do it. So this is what's going to happen. Now, did I put him in jail? No. But he got a conviction on his record and he was going to be monitored. Because after the conviction, he's on a period of... He can't drive at all. Yeah. He's lost his driver's license. And he needed to understand that there were consequences to this. About a year later, I was in a travel agency office. And it's a very small waiting area. And this lady walks in the door and she's Mrs. Professor. And I didn't realize that. She looked at me and said, you're Judge Ford. And I'm looking around and thinking, there's nowhere I can run to. So I said, yes, yes, ma'am. She looked at me and said, I'm Mrs. Professor. I want to thank you for the best year in my life. I couldn't believe all the things that the attorneys were telling you. We used to find his alcohol and take it away. He would hide alcohol on us. He was constantly drinking. He went to those AA meetings on campus at noon, and he got his treatment. And I just want to thank you for the best year I've had. You know, you've got, as I said. Okay, that's problem solving. You've got to know your defendant. You have to read everything. You have to monitor them. If I didn't have that evaluation, this guy gets court supervision. He thinks it's nothing. He just goes and does what he wants to. Uh, he's gotten exactly what he wants to. You have to know and you have to understand. You have to talk to people. You have to let them know this is why I'm doing it and this is what's going to happen. And he changed. You're changing lives. You're not only changing the life there. That illustrates not only of the person who's appearing before you as a defendant. You're changing that person's family life. Correct. Their relationship, probably his performance as a professor, as a teacher, as a colleague, uh, certainly making the uh, things you, you could have avo averted, avoided tragedy that may have happened in the, in, in the well, public if there had been a crash. And that for him, you're talking about driving on campus, which is crazy in and of itself. Yeah. When school's in session while under the influence. Now, you said that he, he when he had the, the, uh, the, the, the test, the drug test, or the alcohol test, it was 0. 0.16 or 0. 0.18? Yeah, it's right around there. Something like that. Okay, now for people who may not understand that, one drink, uh, on, like on an empty stomach or something like that, is about a 0. 0.02. Probably, yeah. Something like that. So to get when they, usually if the limit is 0. 0.10, okay, if, if 0 0.10, well, that would be five drinks, one right after the other. It's four to five, depending on how your your how much you weigh, right. you know, and how your body metabolizes it. So then to get to a 0 0.16, 0 0.18, something like that. Okay, I just had a couple of drinks. 
Yeah, that's what I'm talking about when the math doesn't work out. It doesn't work out at all. In fact, uh, and when when you understand it, your body metabolizes about an ounce. As you go. All as you go an hour. So some is going out, but more is going in to get up to that level. Right. Yeah. Okay, so and go ahead and, and is the... Uh, as things evolved, the development of your approach and, and the nature of the court and the team. When I, uh, I was out of traffic and I had told my presiding judge, I said, if we start a drug court, I'd like to run it. Well, just so happened one of the treatment uh, facilities here, one of their uh, employees came and talked to him about starting a drug court here. And basically he looked at my presiding judge and said, we want Ford. Uh, so at that point, I started researching drug courts. I mean, and I started reaching, researching them and said, this is exactly what I was doing. The philosophy is the same, you know, building a team. I mean, I was working with probation. I was working with treatment at the time, uh, getting reports on them, talking to defendants for a, for a while, getting their trust, explaining things to them. This is what I was doing. Uh, the the rewards, the sanctions, I didn't have a lot of rewards and the sanctions were very few, but effective if I had to use them. Uh, that's what I was doing. But I went and uh, went to a, a drug court. Uh, I started getting involved with a group of people who were involved in drug courts around Illinois. There were a few. Um, most of the time we met in Edwardsville because Madison County had uh, a drug court at that time. And I put together all the paperwork and on March 1st, uh, 1998, we started. Now, I went to probation and I said, we're not going to get people pleading guilty to try and get into drug court right away. But you have people on probation right now who qualify for our court. High risk, high need. High risk, high need. Well, at that point, those weren't the words, but it was, yeah, mm -hmm. they've been in trouble a lot and they got a substance abuse problem. Uh, do a PTR. Pre-trial. Um, petition to revoke, and let's get them into drug court. So that's how I started building up my drug court. Uh, we had the treatment people in the team. Uh, we had probation, of course, the defense attorney. Uh, states We had it at 1 o'clock, so it wouldn't take any extra time out from the state's attorney's office. We started it at 1, so somebody could show up if they wanted to. The state's attorney really wasn't on board. But I said, you want to send somebody here and uh, got task involved. Uh, Which is what? They've had so many names, uh, treatment alternatives or street crimes. Basically, they are involved in substance abuse problems in the state and work in providing treatment to them. And for task, what you could do is somebody who would have to go to the penitentiary for like their third class two felony, like their third burglary could get task probation and not go to the penitentiary on it. So I was telling them, let's get involved. Let's get the task people that are violated. Let's get them in because we can still give them probation, even if they're not probationable, if they're just stealing to support a habit or something like that. So task became part of our team. So now team. you're talking about something like somebody... Uh, committing a felony, but it's felony theft. It's mm -hmm. not a it's not a drug offense. It's not a DUI. 
but it could be a felony possession, but it could be a felony theft. It could be a forgery. It could be a, a burglary, it, uh, criminal damage to property, the stealing alcohol or something like that. Uh, you're just a, you're you're taking a look not at the offense itself. You're looking at the person correct. and you're identifying what are the the criminogenic sorts of problems. What are what are the unmet need problems that need to be solved to prevent this from happening again? Now, we are talking about a team. Okay, I have treatment on one side. I have probation on another. They're not used to working together. They're used to seeing reports from each other, but they're not used to working together. I've got to to build a team. You need to have everybody understand what everybody else is doing. That prosecutor needs to understand what treatment is talking about. That defense attorney needs to understand that what probation is talking about. Treatment needs to know about the criminal justice system. They need to know what can be done. You know, you can't call me on the phone. I'm the judge. There's a thing called ex parte communication. So you don't communicate directly with me. We communicate as a team when the defense attorney is there, when the state's attorney is there. About the case. About the case. You can talk about process, uh, but you can't talk about a case. So I would have treatment and probation were the ones usually at odds. And I would have them say their piece, tell me exactly why. And then, of course, the buck stops here. So I wouldn't be the one to decide what to happen. But they had to learn each other's job. And the problem is, is that probation, if, if you don't get in trouble anymore, you're doing well. Treatment, just because you're not getting in trouble, doesn't mean you don't have a substance abuse problem. So Yeah, just because you don't get caught doesn't mean you're, you're mm -hmm. doing what you're supposed to be doing. And the thing about it is, is that in probation, it's just, you know, they, they haven't looked at that other picture. We tell them to get treatment as long as treatment says they're doing it, we're fine. But, and then I got from probation, well, this isn't a drug crime. And I said, okay, they still have a substance abuse problem. Yeah, they're still committing crimes. Yeah. It may not be caused, this offense may not be caused because they, because they use the drugs, but that doesn't mean they don't have a problem. And why, if we have them now, are we going to let them go? If we let them go, what's the end thing? Are they going to commit another crime? Possibly. Are they going to OD and die? Possibly. Is somebody going to get hurt? Possibly. Why are we going to wait for the correct crime when we have them here already? We know that they've committed felonies and we know they have a substance use disorder. After you've identified the underlying problem, mm -hmm. it's not the crime, it's the person. And the problem that that person is experiencing or that is impacting that person so that they engage in criminal behavior. It's not that particular crime. That's before the court. When I started in DUIs, I changed that because I wanted to make the street safer for everybody on the street, for the pedestrian, for the other driver. Let's change the defendant's behavior so they are not a threat to everybody else. A win-win outcome versus a lose-lose outcome. But what I realized after two months when people started standing up and saying, I want to thank you for saving my life, is that I'm helping them too. They're not only are they changing their behavior so everybody else is safe, they're changing their behavior and they can change. So that's the icing on the cake. So by the time I'm in drug court, I'm realizing 
I can change these people not only to make them safe, but to better their own life. And if we say, well, this isn't the correct crime, so you can't come here now, uh, we're not doing that. I mean, that would be illogical just from a, I mean, legally you might say, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, but logically it doesn't. Problem solving wise, it doesn't. Because what? You have to commit a qualifying crime before you can receive these sorts of uh, problem solving services and, and now, support? You can say that now, but there's legislation right now going through our legislature that wants a nexus between substance use disorder and the crime. And I'll bet I know who's driving that. Somebody is trying to change the drug court statute. So, I mean, and I see this all the time for the legislature. They, they, want, they don't understand how this works. They don't understand we need the correct population. They don't understand we need the right team in there. We need the right people. We just can't throw anybody from treatment in or anybody from probation or anybody from the state's attorney's office or any judge. You need to have the right team there. So, uh, Sometimes they see it as a goose that laid the golden egg. Not everybody graduates, okay? Uh, but a lot of people do. A lot. I, we had over 700 people come into drug court when I was there. I had over 300 graduate. Uh, so, you know, these people that, and I've, I've been talking to people who have had 16, 17 years clean now. And they're working, paying taxes and not committing the problems they did before. So they do work, but you can't dilute them by putting everybody who commits a crime in there. You can't dilute them by or make them so selective that you're not getting everybody who needs them that you can help. Now, when I visited your courtroom, the team included quite a few people. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the team wouldn't always be the same for every particular person that was appearing before you as a defendant. True. Because some people were struggling with homelessness, for example, and other people had a job and, you know, they, they didn't have that problem, that issue. No. And, you know, so, some of those people that had a job started out as homeless. I, uh, we brought law enforcement in on the team. I went in about 20, 2011 to our chiefs of police. And I said, look, I want to bring a law enforcement officer in on my drug court team. And they looked at me and I said, there's research out there that says having a law enforcement officer on your team will benefit you, will help your graduation rates. It seems a little counterintuitive, but it's part of the monitoring. Uh, and they said, uh, well, we, we'd love to, but we don't have the money. I said, you get all your jurisdictions together. We get one. No, we don't have the money. So we went after a grant. And in 2012, I got a grant for a coordinator, which we didn't have. I was kind of doing part of the coordinator stuff with my probation officer and uh, for law enforcement officer, just part-time on the team. After a year, because of a two-year grant, I went back to the chiefs of police. And I brought them, my coordinator went and got comments from the people in drug court as to what about the law enforcement officer. And basically, everybody wanted that officer to stay. Uh, things like keeps the riffraff out of my apartment complex, really helps me out, talks to me. Uh, I was, and I explained to the chiefs, I said, I am getting an officer in uniform to have convicted felons come to them for help and get it. Now that's problem solving, policing. Mm -hmm. that, that's your community policing. I said, I'm doing community policing. Let's keep this going. Well, 
oh, we don't have the money to do that. And then they said, well, we can give you this officer from this, from Champaign, or we can give you another officer for a few days from Urbana and another. I said, no, I need one officer. I'm dealing with people who do not trust the police. But if I can get them to trust one, that officer in uniform, they will come back to that officer. If it's a different officer all the time, they're not going to do that because I don't know this person. Uh, so they didn't. Uh, but then the sheriff here said, if I have an officer who wants to do it when your money runs out, I will keep a part-time officer. And he did. And, and, and it, it's been a big help, uh, especially when all of a sudden somebody's not showing up and we think they may be using again and we want to get to them before they do OD or commit another crime. That officer can get out there and ask other officers uh, around the county. And we've had luck picking people up and getting them the help they needed. In fact, after they graduate, sometimes people use again. They get overconfident. Uh, they think they can. But we made them come back to us. And, uh, you know, there's no petition to revoke that was filed right away. Get back in treatment. Come back and see me every once in a while. We're going to talk about this and just get them back on the road. So, you know, people are people. You've got to deal with what you got. You can, you can help them. You can continuously help them. Let's talk about where, uh, in terms of cost benefit, the benefit part of things. How did the rate of recidivism of the people that have gone through your drug court, your problem-solving drug court, compare to, and we're again, we're talking people who are high risk, high need. These are the people who are most likely to recycle, to recidivate. How did... Can you, can you give us some idea of some metrics as to whether this was effective or not, worth the cost? I'm going to get the exact numbers for you. Uh, after I retired, I went to the coordinator for our drug court, and I said, get me the statistics from three and five years out. Um, yeah, the usual the usual metric for recidivism or the two are the one year rate of recidivism, the three year rate of recidivism. Not the five year. Not the five year. I wanted the three and the five year rate of recidivism. And, and we all knew that the highest rate of recidivism is in the first year, first two years. So I wanted to get after that. After three years, seventy two point eight percent of my graduates did not reoffend. Now, the typical recidivism rate, now this is not high-risk, high-need people. The overall recidivism rate nationwide is typically around 50%. Now, in Illinois, it's a little bit less than that, but we're talking about all cases, all defendants. Now, you're talking about high-risk, high-need people, people at high risk of recidivating, and you're having what kind of per percent of success? Well, 72.8 after three years did not reoffend. So that's what 27.2% did. After five years, 61.5% did not reoffend. And these people, when you're talking about substance use disorder, when you're talking about the addiction, you know, this is something that's always on their brain. This is something that we have to teach them in drug court during the treatment and everything what you have to do to not reoffend anymore. You know, that you have to go to meetings, that you have to build a system around you of people that you can call, need to know where to go to, 
go to a meeting uh, if things start going bad. I tell them, I used to tell them all the time in court, it's easy to do this when things are going good for you. But life happens and things are going to go badly at times. Are you ready to handle it when things go bad? Or are you going to go right back to where you were before? But yeah, after five years, 61 and a half did not reoffend. Again, some of those probably in the, in the other third may reoffend and go back through, recycle through this sort of a, the, the drug court sure. process, and then move from the one-third that was recidivating, recidivating into the two-thirds that were being successful. Not everybody makes it the first time through, but that rate of success is huge when you're talking about the high-risk, high-need population. It, it just makes me think, always has, when, I've, when we've talked about intensive probation, for example, and the success rate that these sorts of programs have, various, various approaches to problem-solving in our criminal just, justice system. Now, if we can be successful with changing the trajectory of people's lives through these sorts of intensive things, it always makes me wonder, why does a person have, why do we have a system where you have to commit a qualifying crime before it triggers your eligibility to receive this sort of support? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense instead of programs to prevent people from recidivating, we put this more upfront in one fashion or another so that we prevent people from committing the crimes in the first place. But that's a different conversation. It is a different conversation. But let me just say that this is this conversation has been terribly enlightening. And you have to hear at the end of your judicial career, as you look back, just you can't help, I'm sure, but reflect on examples of lives changed, lives saved, families saved, careers saved, and public safety, yes. But these ripples that go out, every one of these people that appeared before you played a part, plays a role, even today, in the lives of all these people that they come in contact with. You have literally changed the trajectory of history. I mean, you have. I mean, just think about that. You've made a difference. You've solved problems. And to me, speaking as a former prosecutor, you and people like you are huge heroes to me, role models and examples of what the judicial system should be, could be, can be, if there are, is the financial support to make it happen. I want to thank you. Let me tell you a story. When my grant ran out, where I got the coordinator and then the part-time officer, I went to the county board here and asked for money to continue on with the coordinator. A coordinator is so important, uh, and people don't realize that. And I thought it was going to go through. By coordinator, you're basically talking about team leader. Team leader, uh, make sure everything's running, uh, everything gets done, that the treatment and probation, you know, 
are on the same page. Everybody's reporting. We're getting all this stuff done. Um, I went to the county board and said, I need money to keep our coordinator. And I was told, done deal. They love drug court. Um, and then two days before, I'm told, we, you need to come to the county board meeting. So I sat in front of our county board in Champaign County, who I've described as uh, George Hallis was described once as they throw uh, nickels around like sewer covers, manhole covers. And uh, they start asking questions. And one of the county board members basically is asking me, well, how are you going to repay us for the money? And I'm only asking for like $60,000. And I said, I'm not too sure what you're asking. But let me tell you a story. I had a lady come in years ago into drug court who held the record in Champaign County for giving birth to a baby with the highest level of cocaine in its system ever in Champaign County. A few years later, she came into drug court and she became pregnant. She gave birth while in drug court to a drug-free baby. So if you're asking me what the difference in cost is to have a drug-free baby and a baby with the highest level of cocaine in its body, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that baby with the drugs is going to be in a NICU unit for about seven weeks. During that time, you're going to have some experts in the field coming in and, and monitoring that child. Meanwhile, the state's attorney's office will be filing an abuse-neglect case against the parent and or parents because the baby had born in drugs in system, which means that there'll be at least one, if not more, defense attorneys involved. There'll be a guardian ad litem uh, hired for the child. There'll be a prosecutor involved. There'll be numerous hearings in the beginning and then hearings coming on after that every few months. Uh, this child, according to research will be involved in the criminal justice system at some point or other in their life. The cocaine baby syndrome. So if you're asking me what the difference to give birth to a drug-free baby and the difference for one with highest level of cocaine, I can't tell you the, that amount, but I can tell you it's expensive. Uh, the drug, the county board voted and they voted the money for me because this is what drug court can do. Judge. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation, but thank you for your service and your pioneering efforts. Well, thank you. Solving crime problems requires more problem-solving courts because they are resource-intensive, even though more cost-effective in the long run. More problem-solving courts requires more public support for funding. Be part of the solution by sharing a link to this video if you're watching on YouTube or if you are listening by audio, by sharing a link to our website at justicevoices.org. That's all one word, justicevoices.org. Our next episode continues this problem-solving theme with a conversation with Pastor Chris Harris, who leads Bright Star Community Outreach. BSCO, a remarkable community-based, faith-led organization devoted to healing and preventing trauma.
and providing other community services in South Chicago. BSCO is a model of how crime-ridden communities and any other communities struggling with trauma and its causes can turn things around and build healthier and safer communities. So, follow or subscribe to this program to be sure to receive notice of that and other future episodes. Be part of the solution by spreading the word about this program. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and solutions about justice, healing, and safer communities.